Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, research, technology, unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the program where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. I'm Chris Smith, and in this week's program, it's Q and A time. Yes, you send in the questions, we supply the answers. And coming up, why counting calories doesn't work what's the microbiome and where does it come from and what makes duct tape so sticky yep your chance to get that scientific itch scratched the naked scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk well with us this week are brain and body weight expert i'd also have you down as lifestyle guru, Giles Yo. Welcome Hello. to the programme. You've also got a new book out. What's that on? It's Why Calories Don't Count. There we go. <laughs> it's about, look, I, look, 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 look. Clearly, 200 calories of chips is twice the amount of chips as 100 calories of chips. So they count in terms of from a physics perspective. But we eat food and not calories. And when we eat the food, our body then works through the calories to, to actually pull it out and extract it. So that's what the book's about pretty much. Well, also sitting alongside Giles, at least on my Zoom screen, is astrophysicist Katie Mack. And uh, you've been dabbling with TikTok a bit lately. What have you been up to? <laughs> I have a little bit. I've uh, I've put up a few videos about the expanding universe, and I've gotten some amazing questions and uh, lots of lots of uh, minds blowing all over the place, which is great. What's your favorite um, one? But uh, my favorite one. Um, my favorite one is about uh, the fact that you can see the Big Bang. Uh, because you can see so far out into space that you can see so far back into time that you can see the time when the whole universe was on fire. And that's effectively the, the, the Big Bang. That's the beginning of the universe, and you can actually see it with uh, microwave telescopes. Terrific. Also here, uh, Kate Bibidoff, who's also got a book out. Your one's called It's Elemental. You're a chemist. I'm guessing it's probably got something to do with elements. It does, yes. So I'm a professor of chemistry at the University of Texas. And so I teach general chemistry. And so what I did is I took my favorite lessons and put it into a book. And I talk about the chemistry starting with breakfast all the way down to going to sleep at night. So it's a very, very long day. <laughs> Have you actually got a favorite element? Because obviously, if you've written, oh, obviously. written the book about elements, yeah. <laughs> you must have one that you really, really like. And if so, what is I do. It? Palladium. Palladium is my favorite. I've worked with it forever. I started working with it in undergrad. Um, it's a fantastic catalyst. And so I wanted my engagement rings to be made out of palladium, but my husband missed that. So it's okay. But So what have you got? <laughs> just had to put up with platinum instead. I did. I just had to put up with it. <laughs> well, the final member of our Fabulous Four is microbiome geneticist Rob Finn. Rob, big week for you coming up because do, do, you do realize it's World Microbiome Day this week. Yes. I do, I do. It's You're a big celebrate? day. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we, it, it's not the first year, so we've been celebrating for a few years now. Um, you know, they, it comes in 
different shapes and forms of different microbiomes from human microbiomes to ocean microbiomes and, and it's a really important time to get together and remind people there's lots and lots of things out there that we can't see but they're really important to our existence of course some um, poo related humor isn't top of my list but it does come in at a stable solid number two. Oh, it it it's certainly it's it's an icebreaker whenever you go down the pub uh, now look before we dive into your questions um we've got a guess who quiz running through the program we do this when we do these shows so needless to say we haven't done it for a little while so it's going to be a good refresher to get back into the vibe the clues will be coming up thick and fast across the hour so if you're listening in at home make your guess and then tune in for the next question or the next clue and see if you get it right here's the first one this is what this sounds like So, any guesses, Giles? Any any thoughts on what that might be? A gannet. That's a kind of bird. So you're going down the bird angle. You think it's, it's definitely animal? Mm. Well, it's not a gannet, I'm afraid. But question number one for you. Your your book is called Why Calories Don't Count. So question number number one for you is what, what must be wrong with the humble calorie then? So first of all, I guess what is a calorie? A calorie is the is a unit of energy. It's the amount of Energy it takes to raise a liter of water one degree Celsius at sea level, okay, a food calorie at any rate. So they're all equal once they're in you as a little poof of energy. But because calories are tied up in food, and we actually eat food, not the calories themselves, our body has to work at different rates, put in different amounts of energy in order to extract the calorie from the food. So it does matter whether or not a calorie comes from a carrot, a donut, or a, or, or a steak. The amount of chewing that you expend to extract the calories no the, the energy it takes to metabolize the individual units of food so the glucose you know, fatty acids amino acids the energy it takes to actually pull apart the the chemical components is not taken into account uh, on the side of the packets uh, um, that you actually see everywhere and not just the half pint of cream or custard that inevitably goes with the stewed fruit or whatever um, okay clearly if you have 200 calories of cream, it's going to be twice the amount of 100 calories of cream. But 100 calories of fruit is very, very different from 100 calories of cream. So they count, calories count clearly if you're looking within a food type of scenario. But, you know, there are gazillion diets out there which says, ooh, ooh, um, you, you can only have 400 calories, for example, for lunch. Well, then it's going to make a difference whether or not you're eating 400 calories of sugar uh, or 400 calories of celery. So I think... We worship the calorie today. I mean, this is the point. We count it, you know, we intermittently eat it. We we bat people over the head with them. Whereas I think we need to have a more nuanced view. I mean, just I'll give you one example. For every 100 calories of protein that we actually eat, okay, 100 calories, 30 calories, 30% is used up in terms of just trying to take apart the protein and and, and turn it into into energy. It doesn't matter whether or not this protein comes from a bean or from or from a steak. So all protein calories on the side of every single pack are 30% wrong. And I just feel that people need to know that. Is there therefore an, an ideal diet that we should subscribe to that, that actually takes this into account? Or, or, or are people just wrong? When they, when they just look at calories, they take calorie, calorie face value and, and basically these diets are prescriptively wrong. The explanation for a lot of diets out there are probably wrong, but... Actually, diets do work. The fad diets that we actually see everywhere, most of them actually work for some people at least some of the time. And any diet that results in a reduction in food intake is a diet that, that works. And so if we look at 
um, um, this caloric availability thing. I, I, my purpose is not so for people to count calories more accurately, although that is obviously part of part of the thing. But the two elements of food that influence um, caloric availability the most are protein and fiber. And if you actually think about the protein content of your food and the fiber content of your, of your food, it is a, actually quite a good marker of the quality of your diet. And so I guess the message is for people to not be counting the calories per se, but to think about the quality of the, of, of the diet that you're actually eating. And I think that's far more important than the number, that calorie, which is very easy to see, the number is right there, than to actually count just the calorie in its absolute form. Rob? So, so quality often gets conflated with cost, and that's always a balancing act when people are trying to make choices over the food they eat. What, what, where, do you think it's possible to get a high-quality uh, diet for a low cost? Yes, it is. Now, there, I think there is a nuance here. Clearly, you know, we, we can have a diet of lentils. We can eat dal, okay? And that is very cheap, but yet very, very nutritious. So, so undoubtedly, you can do that. The problem there is it takes time to make a DAO and you need to know how to make a DAO. So I think it is cheap. And this is the argument that a lot of middle class people, and we are all by definition here, middle class people, um, um, just often throw about. Says, look, people just need to learn how to cook better and, and they'll get good food. But you got to have the time. You got to have sometimes have the money, but you certainly have to have the knowledge in, in, in order to do that. Nutritious delicious but as some of us have found to our costs dal is also very what they call phartogenic uh, certainly can <laughs> jet propulsion jet propulsion absolutely thanks charles um well let's move on to another food related question although it's more to do with skin than actually eating it lemons are delicious but that's not the thrust of this question charlotte wants to know kate why does lemon juice on your skin cause sunburn does it it does. It really does. And it can be horrible. One of my very good girlfriends, she just got married a couple of weeks ago, um, had a horrible, horrible burn because of this. So she made us margaritas like from scratch to squeezing out limes. And then we went out to the pool and we hung out all day and she ended up getting wicked burns on the palms of her hands that lasted for over a month. And it was horrible. It's a rash that forms and the rash is called phytophotodermitis. Dermatitis. Ah, I always get stumbled on that. And essentially what, what is happening from a chemical perspective is there's a molecule that exists in your lemons, your limes, and your citrus, and it is photosensitive. And so when it uh, receives sunlight or any high energy radiation from the sun, so UV, visible light, IR, but usually it's that UV light. When the UV light comes in and hits your hands and hits those molecules, it goes through a chemical reaction and it causes this irritation on your skin and you can get this horrible rash. So it's called Lyme's disease, but not like the not, typical not, not Lyme, Lyme disease. disease, not the bacterial Correct. infection. Yeah, quite exactly. Different. Yeah. So it's like the, the joking Lyme's disease and it's, it's a horrible rash. So be very careful. So if you're using lemons, limes, eating oranges outside, especially if you live where I live in Texas, where we get a lot of heat from that sun, wash your hands and just be careful. Is the chemistry similar to the reason that people put lemon juice on their hair to lighten it yeah. in the sunshine? Is, yeah. it, is it capturing energy and sunlight and basically feeding it into things that then make chemical reactions happen? And if it's on your skin, yeah. it hurts your hands. If it's on your hair, it makes it bleach. 
Yep, exactly. It's, a, it's the exact same type of science. Um, you could think about it in the opposite way uh, for sunscreen. So sunscreen has certain molecules that absorb the sunlight, absorb that UV radiation, and then they break down protecting your skin from the sun. Um, unfortunately, this is the kind of the opposite reaction. So the lemon juice like reacts with the sun and, and then your skin has a horrible reaction to the molecule that forms. So wash your hands, but do enjoy your margaritas. I thought you were going to say yes. the error was that she put lemon in your margarita because, I mean, that, that no. is just a cardinal sin, isn't it, doing that? It would be a cardinal sin. I'm glad we agree on that. Um, but she did use limes, but it's the same molecule that exists in all these citrus. So you got to be really careful with that. But just a little soap and water, quick, you know, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, wash your hands, just like we've been doing all year constantly. So it's no big deal. Just <laughs> One uh, sort of silver lining to the COVID cloud. Yeah, people are washing their hands more. Rob, um, over to you. We've got a microbiome question from Graham. Graham says, the trillions of organisms in the human body, how did they get there? They start coming into us as we're being born. So it's been shown that as you are born, those children who are born by cesarean section, they don't actually have as, as mature microbiome as when they come out. So that's a very important part. And then throughout your life, so as you start feeding, so breast milk is not pasteurized like our milk is typically pasteurized. So there are bacteria in that milk. You start ingesting those bacteria. And then as you start moving on to solid food, you start getting a more interesting microbiome. It becomes more diverse just because you're exposed to more things. So really it's, it's about you know, the food we eat and the environment we're in. And, and also what, what happens to your microbiome over time, you don't get it and then it stays fixed. Obviously, as, as you may have courses of antibiotics, that may change your microbiome. So, you know, it, it's really one of those things that you are what you eat and what you get exposed to. It's often said that uh, you never dine alone, even if you are on your own, because there are 37 trillion bacteria there to, to help you digest your dinner. Indeed. I, I mean, they're really, really important uh, in, in that digestion process and uh, they are really important to, to your health. And, and this is why, you know, there are lots of people now advocating that looking after your microbiome is a really important part to human health. Katie. Yeah. So children get their microbiome from, you know, putting everything in their mouths and playing in the mud and, and all of that. Is that uh, something that should be encouraged for, for little kids to go out and just like devour everything or is it like how, what are the limits to that social that services kind of you can get in touch with katie mac uh, via <laughs> her email address or find her on twitter well because i've heard about this and i'm just wondering what what the actual advice is yeah i mean you you get exposed to so much so if you take a, a someone who has a very clean sort of lifestyle never puts anything in or everything's really dis disinfected you get you're going to get sources from all different shapes and form there is this notion of, of, you know, having pets and sort of that slightly uh, less sanitized environment is actually better for you. There is a little bit of evidence of it, but there, it, it, there are so many factors to the construction of your microbiome that actually I, I wouldn't advocate going and licking sort of toys that have fallen on the floor to try and improve your microbiome. You're far better of having a, a varied and balanced diet. You heard it here. Rob Finn says, don't go around licking toys that you've found on the floor, um, <laughs> especially at the moment with what we're encouraging people to do in terms of cleanliness. Thanks very much, Rob. From baffling British weather. The sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. To looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic 
and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientist's In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Now, still to come here on the show, could dark matter be a whole bunch of secret planets? We'll ask Katie that one. What is activated charcoal? Indeed, what's activated about it? And should identical twins have the same microbes in their guts? Meanwhile, here is the next clue for Guess Who. This is where we give you a series of clues across the programme and you've got to work out what the mystery thing or entity is. We said it sounds like this... Now, here's clue two. You can hear this sound between March and April. Giles speculated gannets. Um, Katie, any any thoughts from you, that noise, March, April? What do you think it might be? I mean, it sounded like a bird to me as well. I don't know if there's a, there's a, a very brief migration period or something. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'll give you a prod. It's not a bird. Now, we've heard from Matt, Katie, and he says... Given the universe expanded from the moment of the Big Bang in a matter of seconds, is there any concern that the universe could contract equally quickly back to an infinitely dense point again? We're pretty sure the universe is not going to contract again. So right now we see the the expansion of the universe and the way we see the expansion of the universe is that we see distant galaxies moving farther apart from each other and moving farther away from us. And so we see that there's this just uniform expansion throughout space. And for a long time, it wasn't clear if that would continue forever or if the expansion would sort of slow down and stop and and turn around because, you know, the expansion was set off by the Big Bang, but all of the gravity of everything in the universe is kind of pulling together. And that that sort of slows down the expansion and puts on the brakes. And so for a long time, we were measuring the expansion and trying to figure out how quickly it was slowing down to see if it was slowing down enough that it would stop and, and recollapse or if it was, you know, if we just keep going, but, you know, never actually stop. And uh, when those measurements were complete in the 1990s, it turned out that it was not slowing down. It was actually speeding up and the expansion of the universe is now accelerating And we don't know exactly why that is. Uh, We attribute it to something we call dark energy. We don't know what dark energy is, uh, but it looks like it might just be a property of space, that there's a certain expansion, a sort of stretchiness in space itself that that kind of pushes out. And if that's the case, if that's what the expansion is accelerating because of, then it's not going to stop and turn around. It's going to keep going, keep expanding forever, and the universe will just get bigger and bigger and bigger and emptier and emptier and emptier as as the space expands. But there are some caveats there. One of them is that we don't know what the dark energy is, so we don't know for sure that it is just a property of space that'll stay the same forever. It might be something that changes over time. It might be something that will get more powerful. It might turn around and make the universe start coming together again. We We don't really know. Thanks for that, Katie. Giles, one for you. Which Mm. is worse, full sugar, full fat, fizzy drink, or one that's got artificial sweeteners? This is a hot topic at the moment. Um, Let's just deal with one thing out there. A lot of people says that artificial sweeteners, aspartame, you know, stevia, whatever. Can you see Kate Kate just laughing there and picking up her can of diet drink and swigging it down as you just on cue (laughs) as you began to talk? So, I mean, the first thing is, look, people say that sweeteners are cancerous. 
They're cancerous if you stuff 100 liters of a diet soda into a rat. That will cause cancer. But at the levels and at the doses that we actually drink it, like in a can or anything like that, they're not cancerous. So that's the first thing, okay, that we, that we, need, to, we need to worry about. But, and this is the big but here, is there something which happens that if you drink a lot of diet soda and you actually break the uh, communication between the taste and the amount of nutrients you're actually absorbing? Because that ultimately, we evolve through that, ooh, a red berry, ooh, sweet, ooh, calories. Okay, so, so this is sort of the, the way that our primitive brains work. But if you actually break that connection, so in other words, you have the sweet flavor, you drink it, but you then absorb no nutrients. The longer term question is, will it then end up affecting your metabolism in some way, subtly or otherwise, and therefore increasing your risk of disease? Now here, I can't give you a straight answer. I think there is some evidence that this does happen, that, that uh, uh, this disconnect between the flavor and the, and the number of calories, the amount of nutrients you actually eventually absorb, will actually begin in, in the long term to start messing about with your metabolism. Now, does this mean it is worse for you than the full sugar drink? Now it depends who you are. Now, clearly, if you're diabetic, then it is not. Please, don't, don't be drinking the, the, the full sugar drink. If you suffer from obesity, maybe you should be considering not drinking the full sugar drink. And if you're a kid, a child, particularly a young child, I think we need to have children drinking less sugar. So my answer is going to be that a diet beverage, a diet drink is going to be not as bad as a full sugar drink for many people, but ultimately water is the best drink that you can drink. While you were talking, I saw you obviously made Katie thirsty because she was picking up a glass. Is that a glass of, it's a glass of clear fluid. Is that gin? You're drinking a glass of gin. You've got half <laughs> a pint of gin. Just oh, vodka. 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 Yeah, right. yeah, so he's yeah. got half a pint yeah. of it. Looks good. Uh, Kate, back to you. Um, this question from Julian. Wonderful question. What force makes duct tape stick to a wall it is really very sticky isn't it how does it do it it's very sticky and it's funny is i get this question from kids all the time so i don't know why a kid i want to know about this but i am ready to answer this question so for duct tape it's really neat there's basically two main forces that happen here there's a bunch of molecules in your tape and there some have really strong adhesive forces and some have strong cohesive forces so adhesive is when something sticks to something else and so that's the part of the tape that's going to allow your tape itself to tape to the poster and then also tape to the wall. The problem is you need the tape to stick to itself as well. So that's the really cool part. That's the cohesive part. So when a molecule wants to touch just itself, stick to itself and not touch the wall at all, that's going to be its cohesive properties. What actually chemically is going on to give the molecules on the white side of the tape that are really sticky and pull your fingers apart when you try and get them off your fingers that, that actually give them those adhesive properties? So they're called intermolecular forces. And so it's when a molecule wants to interact with another molecule physically without going through a full on chemical change. Like we're not having an explosion here or a bomb. We're just having some intermolecular forces. So usually it's like the negative side of one molecule is attracted to the positive side of another molecule there. It's kind of like when you see a hot guy across the bar and you're like, Ooh, I like that. And you're just like, you walk across the bar, right? You just go straight over there. It's the same type of attraction. And so you come together, maybe you hold hands for a moment, maybe you kiss for a second, but you don't chemically change. Like your body doesn't change. So you're just going to hang out and you're like 
you know, holding hands. But then when you want to rip your poster off the wall, you can just like let go of their hand and move on and go on with your day. You're a fast mover, Kate. They, they do things differently in Texas. We, you know, we're a bit more sedate here in the UK. We, we take our time with these dates. No, we go after what we want here. <laughs> um, but you can obviously probably anticipate where I'm going to go with the next question, which is you mentioned about cohesive forces. You said the lovely line, you need the glue to stick to the tape too. This is going to cue the question in everyone's mind. If Teflon's so blinking slippery, how do they make it stick to the pan? How do they make Teflon stick to the pan? So it has different sides of the molecule itself. So you can't always assume that one molecule is just like 100% uniform. Just like we have like long hair on our head. We don't necessarily have hair on our feet. Like molecules just are kind of a little bit different or they're asymmetrical. Giles so does. One... He's, Giles is nodding. He's got hair on his feet. Yeah, he said, yeah, he has. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's true. Giles, you're my <laughs> exception. Okay, except for him. Um, molecules are often asymmetrical. So maybe like the head of the molecule is able to attract to the pan itself and that's what's clinging onto the pan for dear life and then the feet itself gives like the repellent property and so that's what allows for your food not to actually stick on the pan because it's repelled from that side of the molecule so So, it's all about asymmetry some of the food that comes out the pan is repellent in its own right but not for chemical (laughs) reasons because it visually and in taste terms is just gross especially when i've been cooking it but that's just me much has changed for business owners managers and staff recently But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Now, in this episode, I have with me a panel of experts who are taking on your science questions. We've got astrophysics extraordinaire Katie Mack, mighty microbiomaster Rob Finn, crafty chemist who we've just been hearing all about sticky stuff and dating, Kate Bibidorf, and uh, diet and weight wizard Giles Yo. And if you'd like to get a question in for a future programme like this, you can use our web form. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash question, or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Before we ask them any more questions, let's get back to our Guess Who competition. I played you the sound that this thing makes. I also told you March and April are magic months for this, and so far Giles has speculated gannets, Katie's speculated some kind of bird of some sort. Here is your next clue. They produce toxins behind their eyes. Hmm. Rob, any ideas? Uh, I... I would guess it's something like a frog, maybe. He's going into the amphibian world. So we've departed avians and we're into amphibians now. OK, stay tuned. I'll give you another clue in a bit. But first, we also, in these programmes, have a little quiz in the middle of the show to test the mettle of our panellists. And we're going to have two teams, Katie and Rob, you're team one, and Kate and Giles, you are team two. So these are in three rounds and you can confer... And we want to hear your thoughts. So do chat to each other as you dissect and cogitate over these questions and try and hopefully reach a consensus. First round is called The Eyes Have It. And question one for Katie and Rob. The cornea is the only part of the body with no blood supply. It gets its oxygen directly from the air. Science fact or science fiction? What do you think? So I think, Katie, I think that it doesn't have a blood supply. 
but I don't think it gets its oxygen entirely from the air uh, because I believe that uh, you have a very thin membrane over the surface of the eye. I'm not sure what you think. Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, it's not fully exposed to the the open air. I, I don't think, but I mean, aren't there are there not other parts of the body that don't have a blood supply? I mean, do teeth? I guess the outer parts of teeth don't, but the maybe I mean the inner parts do. I guess, but um, I'm surprised if it's if it's really the only piece. So, so I guess the 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 only part to to add in is where is the oxygen coming from if it's not coming from directly from the air and I, I guess that's the fluid of the the eye would be the the obvious place where the diffusion of the oxygen comes but i would go with false here but i i, I don't know yeah i think i would go there false no i'm really sorry this is actually true uh, the cornea is avascular it has no blood vessels normally in health in humans some animals do have vascularized corneas, and in humans who wear contact lenses, especially not very gas permeable, thick, non rigid contact lenses, you can get a phenomenon called neovascularization when blood vessels will grow into the cornea to deliver oxygen because the cornea is dependent on close contact between itself and the air that hits the front of the eye to extract oxygen to nourish that very thin layer of avascular tissue. Uh, let's try question two for team two. Kate and Giles, the fear of eyes, and this is eyes as in things we've just been talking about, not letter eyes as opposed to like P's and Q's and so on. This is known as calampochophobia. The fear of eyes is known as calampochophobia. Is that true or false? <laughs> I'm going with false, but I am basing that on nothing. That just sounds like a false word. I, I, and I have nothing intelligent to say about this. Calum, the, the only word bit of this is the, is the suffix of phobia, which I understand. Calum, say it again. Calum, hoopy, hoopy, what's what? Calum pocophobia. <laughs> there is nothing to, to confer. I'm going to go, I'll go with Kate's gut feeling. They made up a fun word to try to trick us into it. That's what I'm going with. Yeah, okay. I'll go with Kate. False. It It, it is indeed false. It's actually... Amatophobia, which is the fear of eyes, but you, you pair who accused us of fabrication <laughs> very unfairly, calampochophobia is actually fear of corn. Although, why you'd be frightened of that, I don't know. Perhaps if you have some kind of pathological allergy or something. Yeah. But one point so far to team two. Right, round two bigger is better. So, Kate and Rob, team one, which is the longest? The Nile, that's the river, the Great Wall of China. Or the Andes range of mountains? Which is the longest? I have no idea. They're all very long. I, I'll give you that. Um, Rob, I, I, Rob's I, frantically I, Googling them, trying to look yeah, at yeah, that, that, <laughs> I'll put my hands up and. Come. Just oh, list them again Nile River, Great Wall of China, or the Andes mountain range? The longest. Great Wall of China, because you can see it from space. <laughs> you don't. You can see anything from space if you have a yeah, telescope. <laughs> I would flip a three-sided coin and get Andes, I guess, but I don't know. Go Andes, then. Okay. Going for the Andes. Hooray! Yes, it is the Andes. Yes. The Andes range of mountains, 7,600 kilometres in length. The Nile, a close 6,700. The Great Wall of China, only 3,400 kilometres. So still pretty big, all the same. Right, level pegging. Let's see if you can uh, retain your lead, Kate and Giles, with your question two of round two. 
What is bigger, lion, tiger, or jaguar? Okay, I'm going to put the jaguar out of this only because I watched too many uh, David Attenborough films. Um, and I'm going to go with tiger. I know the king, I know the king of the beasts, you know, lion king, yada, yada, yada. I just get the feeling it's going to be a Bengal tiger. I think so, right? Have you seen the video of the tigers where they run through the field and then jump up over the, the big trucks? I mean, those tigers are huge. I've never seen a lion do that. I'm going with a tiger. Yeah, we got to go with a tiger. Mm-hmm. So Kate's basing this firmly on Discovery Channel and Giles yep. is ruling out David Attenborough. Uh, so um, <laughs> that, on that basis, you're going with tiger and you get... Yep, you're absolutely right. A point for that one. The tiger is the correct answer. The Siberian or Amur tiger, males have a total length 2.7 to 3.3 metres from nose to tail tip. They also weigh up to 306 kilos, almost a third of a tonne, one single cat. So two points to team two, one point to team one, and we're into round three. This could be the decider, and it is the football at the moment, so we've got to have a round on the Euros, haven't we, of course? I hope you're all sports fans. No, I'm only kidding. It is a round on the Euros, but we're not going to be basing it just on football. Katie and Rob, the impact force of heading a football, and for you, Katie, just to translate, that means soccer, that is enough to break a femur, true or false? Having misheaded several balls in my time, I would say it probably is true because it doesn't half hurt. I mean, it t- it takes a lot to break a femur, um, but also, you know, this the sort of forehead part of your skull, if you get the angle right, is quite quite strong. So, so I guess the question is, if if you headed a femur, uh, which would break first? Or is that, is <laughs> you can that tell the, she's uh... a physicist, can't you? <laughs> uh, Rob, I'll go with your uh, your instinct here. I'm afraid you get a this is false Um, if you consider a professional regulation size 5 soccer ball with an inflation pressure of £16 per square inch this this yields an average impact force of 3,606 newtons but it takes about 4,000 newtons to break a human femur so you probably can head with some impunity but you might get Alzheimer's disease Unfortunately, no point there. Let's see if you can uh, retain your crown. Kate and Giles, a strong enough kick with enough spin on a football could theoretically make it complete a full circle and return to you. Science fact or science fiction? Oh, yeah. Have a ball flip around and come back to you? I'm going with the eye. So this is if you're strong enough. This is, this is, this is the if, right? So if you Ronaldo or someone, you kick the ball and it curves... Whether or not you're strong enough to actually maintain the spin, or or are you assuming strong lack of gravity, anything just on Earth? What do you think? I mean, I have no idea. My when I kick a ball, I, I try and will it to bend. It does. It normally heads in the opposite direction. I'm trying to hit it, so I'm the wrong person to to say anything intelligent about this. I'm gonna go with Kate again. She was. Uh, uh, and say yes it is possible the boomerang yeah boomerang balls i think so i'm convinced you get a 
<laughs> no, it's false, I'm afraid. As the ball moves through the air, frictional losses, because the air rubbing on the outside of the ball does slow it down, and that means the radius of the turn does become smaller and smaller because the ball will become susceptible to various other forces once it drops down and becomes slow enough for the air to stick to the surface of the ball. So that means the ball theoretically can go in smaller and smaller circles, but in order to do that, it would have to be spinning incredibly fast, and that, in fact, is much faster than a human could possibly kick it. So it's a no. Anyway, congratulations, Team 2. You are the Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week Award winners. Don't tell all your friends. Let's get back to the questions. Uh, Rob, one for you. Twin microbiomes, this one's all about. Um, Sally wants to know... If two identical twins ate identical food, would their microbiomes be identical? It's really hard to answer that because it depends how long they've been eating exactly the same diet for. So it's a bit like your microbiome changes over time. It's a bit like when you sort of plough a field and you see the succession of, of, of plants that come in and then if it was left for long enough, you'd eventually get trees. And so your, your microbiome is constantly changing. Uh, we also have to remember we're carrying around about two kilograms of microbes in us. So when we take two individuals, their microbiomes can really differ by sort of 80%. So there's some really interesting sort of things at play there. However, I think that if they had been in a very confined environment, eating exactly the same diet, I think there's a good chance that their microbiomes would be close to identical as well. Uh, the, the only place that I've ever seen this sort of thing happen is people are in, in hospitals when they had these uh, very regimented uh, shake diets where they had three shakes every day for about a month and a half. And that is the only time when I've seen uniform microbiomes where it was really hard to tell them apart from two individuals. Giles, you're nodding. Um, we haven't really brought up the interface between where you're coming from with calories in food and how much energy we extract from our food and where Rob's coming from with the, the microbiome that sees our dinner before we do. So we know that the heritability of so the percentage of a given variance of a given trait that's down to your genes um, versus the environment, the heritability of the microbiome is around 40%, I think, r r roughly. So I think in any uh, uh, in, a, in the wild, I think twins would normally have around 40% of similar microbiome. That's my understanding. Now, the role of the microbiome in terms of metabolizing our food, I mean, huge. It's clearly going to be the first line. That's where our food gets to first. And there are a number of things that the microbiome in particular plays an important role in, in metabolizing. And they're going to be uh, soluble fibers. So normal fiber, the insoluble stuff, we eat it, it keeps the bugs happy and it comes out the other side. But the Soluble fiber, so this is like pectin, the stuff that you make a, a jam or jelly for the Americans. And the, the bugs are able to ferment that into short-chain fatty acids. Um, the other thing which the bugs also play a role in terms of metabolizing are going to be uh, sugars. Okay, In particular, so I'm not talking here about uh, sucrose, but polysaccharides, so long uh, uh, chains of sugars that, that are there. And some bugs will be able to ferment that and, and give off gas. So, so sometimes some sugars can make us get a bit gassy and that's going to be down to the bugs in our gut. Thank you, Charles. And uh, before Charles, thank you very much to Rob. Before we have any more questions, it's time for the fourth and final clue of our Guess Who. This is where we give you a sequence of clues across the programme and you've got to work out what this mystery entity is. I played you the noise they make. 
We also mentioned the months of March and April and said that they have toxins or poisons behind their eyes. Final clue, they commonly need help crossing the road. Kate, any clues? Any ideas? It's either a turtle or a duck or you said it wasn't a bird, so I'm going with turtle then maybe. It's not a turtle. Stay tuned. Tortoise. The identity will be revealed towards the end of the programme. Now, Katie, um, we mentioned this earlier in the show, this question about dark matter. John wrote to us with this question. Is it at all possible that dark matter is just simply rogue planets that we can't see creating all the extra gravity holding galaxies together? Right. So dark matter is uh, a kind of matter that we can't see. So when it was first uh, discovered to be something that's out there in the universe, it was discovered through the way that it affects the rotation of galaxies. So we live in the Milky Way galaxy. It's a sort of disk shape with a lot more stars and stuff at the center, and then it sort of uh, flattens out. Um, And the stars orbit around the center of the galaxy. It takes millions and millions of years. And you can tell by looking at a lot of different galaxies that the stars go around them a a lot faster than you would think they should. Like if you look at the galaxy and you count up all the light in the center of the galaxy and all the light from the stars and the gas and the dust and, you know, even uh, assume that there's a supermassive black hole in the center, the stars are still going around more quickly around the outer edges than they should. You you would expect that they would just kind of fling off into space because there's just not enough gravity from what you can see to hold them in. And so uh, based on that and a, a whole huge number of other things, we conclude that, that galaxies are actually mostly made of something invisible, something that we can't see, some kind of matter that's that's providing the extra gravity to hold everything together. And for a long time, we didn't have any ideas for what that could be. It was just something that wasn't putting out light. Um, but we've determined that that it really can't be anything like planets or dust or, or atoms, uh, regular stuff, because it doesn't absorb light. So if it were something like rogue planets, then it wouldn't be invisible. It would be opaque. And we don't see that. And we also don't see the the dark matter sort of uh, collapsing together into a disk the way that regular matter does. So in kind of similar ways, how if you had a, a, a lump of, of pizza dough and you spin it, everything in space, uh, when it comes together with gravity, there's, there's some overall spin and, and then it, it, it sort of all averages out to that kind of disky shape. And dark matter doesn't seem to do that. We can see evidence that dark matter stays kind of puffy and, and rounded in a way that, that regular matter doesn't. So we have a number of reasons to suspect that it's not regular matter. It's not something like planets. It does seem to be something different, something that can bump into other dark matter and just pass right through and not collide and get stuck in the middle. And we have a few pieces of evidence for for that as well, where we've seen entire clusters of galaxies collide with each other and a lot of the regular matter gets stuck in the middle but the the bulk of the gravity the dark matter passes right through the collision we see it show up on the other side after these after these uh, collisions so so we're pretty sure that it's something weirder than that um we think maybe it's some kind of new particle that we didn't know about before that just doesn't interact in the ways that most other particles do uh, specifically doesn't do electromagnetism, which is, you know, light and and magnetism and electrostatic repulsion and all of that, you know, like a neutrino, which is another kind of particle that doesn't seem to do that force, that doesn't do electromagnetism. It's probably some kind of new particle. So So there you go, John. It's not a planet. 
And you know what they say, when physicists put the word dark or X in front of something, it usually means this is a signal for more grant money, please. So that's almost yes. certainly <laughs> what we do know about the subject. Uh, foodie question for you, Giles. Eva's getting a mm. bit exercised about ultra-processed foods. She mm. says... Are ultra-processed foods the worst foods you could eat? Okay, so ultra-processed... So, first of all, people think that processed food is bad, but cooking is a process, you know, fermenting is a process. So yogurt is a processed food. Bread is a processed food. So processed foods have been around forever. Ultra-processed foods, however, are foods that undergo industrial processing that we don't, well, we are not able to replicate in our kitchens or in normal restaurants. So these include extrusion and, you know, washing the carcass of an animal with a high-pressure washer and then heating the, the, the stuff up into pink slime, that, that, kind, of, that kind of stuff. Okay, so that is ultra-processed foods. But is it the worst foods we can eat? So I guess why... Well, I mean, you I'm could al- argue that cyanide mm. would probably be the worst food you could eat. I mean, that, that probably would be arguably worse for but you. But is it than... a food, though? <laughs> But if it goes in and you eat it intending oh, to <laughs> feed yourself on it, then I suppose you could regard it as food. You've eaten it. I mean, it, the outcome wouldn't be good. So I guess ultra-processed foods, okay, I was going to say they're not toxic to us. They clearly are toxic to us at a certain dose, but most things are. Um, but ultra-processed foods are not poisonous. Okay, so in other words, if you had a little bit of ultra-processed foods, it's not going to kill you. It's because we're having too much of it. So the question is why? I think the primary reason is because when you ultra-process a food, a number of things tend to happen. You tend to strip out protein and or fiber, depending on the type of food you're eating. And you tend to remove flavor, which means you have to add flavor back in. Flavor comes from sugar, fat, salt. Okay, these are the holy trinity. This is where all flavor comes from. And so ultra-processed foods tend to be lower in protein and fiber, and so therefore are very calorically available, which means that we have, we're able to extract far more calories from it than, than unprocessed foods um, and tend to be high in fat, sugar, and salt. So that is what an, an ultra-processed food is, and therefore they tend to be bad for you. They tell you, you don't want to eat too much ultra-processed foods. Um, so that's, that's, is, is it the worst food you could have? It depends how much ultra-processed food you're eating. I mean, if you ate an entire uh, stick of butter, <laughs> so I don't think that's going to be great for you. And butter is not an ultra-processed food. Butter is a, is, you know, and if you ate too much of, I'm trying to think it's only carrots, then you can actually end up with, uh, with, with you know, turn orange and have this, uh, um, you know, carrot poisoning. And that's not a good thing either. So I think the dose makes the poison. It just so happens in the UK, in North America, we get... of our calories at the moment from ultra-processed foods. The problem with ultra-processed foods is the dose that we're actually getting them at. So one kebab, not two. Thanks for that, Giles. Now let's talk about charcoal, um, because uh, Phil wants to know, Kate, what is activated about charcoal? And and how does it work in a water filter, for example, to make the water more pure? So activated charcoal is essentially a chunk of carbon, which is just what charcoal is, that has been ground up to a really fine powder. And so when we throw the word activated on it, it just means that it has a lot of surface area. So for example, one gram of activated carbon has a surface area of around 3,000 meters squared, or for Americans, 32,000 square feet. Um, So it's a lot. It's a a huge surface area. And so when you use activated carbon like a 
filter, which is what we do when we try to purify water, it acts exactly like a face mask does. It lets the small molecules go through like oxygen when we're breathing, or in this case, water. Um, but the big bad molecules or the bad pollutants can't go through the face mask and they can't go through the filter. And so your clean little water molecules go through the bottom, but the bigger molecules or those pollutants, things we're trying to filter out, get trapped in the pores of the carbon and they get kind of stuck there. And so it's a really beautiful way to purify water. And I'm a big fan. So it's not a chemical trick. It's not doing any additional novel chemistry. It's just no. a structural trick. It's like a fine grain filter with a big surface yeah. area. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Now, there are going to be people who are moth chemists or PCM chemists who are going to argue with that because there can be some adhesive properties that happen. And depending on what molecules you can spike it with, you can take this in a whole different direction. Um, but pure, plain, activated carbon is just carbon that's going to trap bigger molecules. That's it. Thank you, Kate. Um, and talking of you brought up masks and filters and things, one for you, Rob, about COVID and lungs. This question from Joanne goes, could the microbiome of the lungs be different between asymptomatic and symptomatic sufferers of COVID-19? In other words, could what's living on us and in us determine your outcome when you catch this new coronavirus? To be honest with you, we don't know at the moment it's very difficult so so we do see some changes between uh individuals uh who who are asymptomatic and symptomatic or don't even have coronavirus but usually people who do actually display symptoms they're receiving other treatments and it's really hard to tell are those treatments changing the microbiome or is it the fact that you've got an altered microbiome that is actually uh caused you to be symptomatic. So I, I would say that this is a really interesting research area. Uh, the lung microbiome is much harder to tackle than, than the uh, human gut where stool was used. And so I think that's uh, uh, certainly an area for, for ongoing research in the future. Is there actually a very big assemblage of microorganisms right deep down in your lungs? Or is the air and the airways right down there relatively clean and most of the bugs are in the back of your throat? There, There is definitely a lung microbiome, but it's nowhere near as complex. The assemblage is much simpler and, and there are just fewer in terms of number. I mean, we know that, that your lung microbiome plays a key role in other diseases. So there, there are things like inflammatory diseases like uh, COPD, the, the chronic obstructive pulmonary disease uh, is really a key area where microbiome is being implemented in lung microbiome so it definitely plays a role in some inflammatory disease but with the covid data is just not sufficient for us to really draw concrete conclusions yet thanks for that rob we'll back up into space now and um katie to you adam is is wondering does it matter that billionaires like elon musk are filling the space near earth with so many satellites uh, it's a, this is a, a, a very kind of heated discussion happening um, among astronomers and uh, space technology people and, um, and those who are actually putting these satellites up there. Um, from the astronomer's side, one of the things that we worry about with all of these uh, satellites, like the Starlink uh, satellites, where there's, I think, more than a thousand of them up there now, and there's going to be possibly as many as 10,000 or, or more the problem is that those get in the way of our observations. And when we are trying to study deep sky objects and we have to stare at something for a very long time with, with a telescope, 
when lots and lots of satellites are crossing through the image, you get these stripes that, that are really hard to, to deal with uh, for certain kinds of observations. And the fact that they're somewhat problematic for, for certain kinds of um, observations, both visual observations and also potentially radio, because they're also beaming back information uh, to Earth, and that can, that can give us radio interference when we're doing radio observations of space. There's also a growing concern that it's just changing the way the night sky looks. And so it's a kind of, for people who have a beautiful dark sky and can watch the stars, it's going to look different when there are lots of little tiny points of light that are moving across the sky all the time. And and that's a question of, you know, what's our responsibility to the world to maintain the pristine nature of the night sky, this this global resource? So I think it's it's a complicated question. And there are just lots of aspects of it. And there are really big discussions happening all the time about can these things be controlled? How should we control them? Who should have authority over what gets put into orbit? Um, and it's something that's going to get more and more important over time as, as more of these things are going up. Kate? Didn't the ISS just get damaged from space junk? I mean, aren't we worried about that too? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we do worry about space junk. Um, we worry about, I mean... Space junk can be anything. It could be a, 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 a screw that was that fell out when somebody was doing a repair on something. I mean, and there's a lot of that that's being tracked all the time. Um, and these little satellites, as there are more and more of those, we need more and more systems to mitigate the possibility of collisions. And and collisions are are still pretty rare. Like there's still not so much up there that that you have to worry about this stuff too much. But we do need to have kind of a more a more robust system for if there is going to be a near encounter, because at the moment, each satellite owner could say, eh, I don't really want to move my satellite. Why don't you move your satellite? And and there have been situations where uh, there's been a conflict over who, who has to fire their you know, attitude adjustments to, to move the thing, or sometimes they can't. Sometimes these things don't have the ability to adjust themselves. And then you have to worry about the possibility of an actual collision, which can cause really major damage, even if it's just between two, you know, robotic satellites that don't even come near people, those can damage other satellites and, and damage the space station and, and so on. And so it, that that's also something people are worried about. And by attitude adjustment, we're, we're not talking psychology so much <laughs> right. as the, the physical positioning yes. of, of objects in space, although a, a psychological uh, a change and adaptation might also be quite constructive, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, look, we've, we've run out of time, so I suppose I should put you all out of your misery as to what this creature that sounds like this is. We told you, as well as sounding like that, it's uh, got a particularly uh, important time of the year, which is March-April, Toxins and poisons produced from behind the eyes. Those are all good clues, including the difficulty crossing the road. It's a common toad, would you believe? So not a gannet, not a bird, not a turtle. It was an amphibian. Rob was was closest. Well done, Rob. So you can you can also have a my, um, a naked scientist big brain of the week award. Well done. So did you get it at home? Yes, it's the common toad. Well. I must say a very big thank you to the panel this week who, who helped us out answering your science questions. They were Giles Yeo, Kate Bibberdorf, Rob Finn and Katie Mack. Do be sure to tune in at the same time next week and bring your bug repellent with you because we're going to talk about Lyme disease, not the Lyme's disease that Kate was telling us about earlier caused by making your margaritas with lemons and then forgetting to wash your hands. This is the painful, debilitating, hard-to-detect condition which is transmitted by the bites from infected ticks 
and it's on the rise. We'll find out who's getting it, why they're getting it, what the consequences are and how you can get rid of it. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute of Continuing Education, which is at the University of Cambridge, and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and from all of us here on the team, thank you for listening and goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.